What boundaries are is a question of law. Where boundaries are is a question of fact. Adage, circa 1830, author unknown. You sight the compass and move forward in a straight line, heedless of anything that might stand in your way. A thousand crickets announce your presence on the sun-dried slope as you study a horizon some 30 miles off. These are the tools that cleanse the land of its wicked wilderness. These are tools on which civilizations are built and have always been built since the nomads first laid claim to the earth in their name. This chain, 66 feet and 100 links long, this is how you claim what's yours, what's not theirs. It keeps them out, or at least holds them back, whoever they may be. It gives you the right, the God-given right, to force them out. It gives you the right to kill. But they, the others, they've got tools of their own. A war whoop goes up, and an arrow cuts the fringe of your jacket. Your goals aren't all that different, really. In another time, another place, you might have gotten on just fine as neighbors, friends even. But the baggage everyone brought to this place is just too much for anyone to bear. So you drag your chain onward, and you'll take what's yours. By the late 1830s, white settlers were emerging from the deep pine forests of East Texas and onto the picturesque Blackland Prairies, a patchwork of low hills and ridges, dark oak forests, and rolling grasslands underlain by their namesake black soil. These were just the latest wave in a relentless march west that had begun more than 200 years before, a flood of the desperately poor and oppressed, squatters, fugitives, debtors, and aspiring plantation princes. Europe was drowning, and the Americas were the release valve. Here in Texas, they could finally see sky. It was an escape from the claustrophobia of the teeming cities, the systematic theft of their ancestral lands, and the rigid social structures of the only world they knew, but no longer recognized. Here was refuge from all they were running from, and unwittingly dragging behind them. But the lands they were escaping to obviously weren't vacant. Depending on who you ask, people occupied Texas 11,500 years ago at the very, very least. Regardless, people were here. And if the land ever appeared empty to the endless waves of settlers, it's because the vanguard of white tide was plague, killing millions of Native Americans as it swept across the continent. For generations, the pattern was always the same. Settlers would move on to native lands, conflict would flare up, treaties would be signed and broken, land would be surveyed, and the natives would be driven west, enslaved, or wiped out altogether. By the 1830s, the tribes of the southeastern U.S. were being herded like cattle down the Trail of Tears to so-called reservations in alien western lands. An empire for a new gentry was being built, in the model of the mother continent the destitute refugees of old world kingdoms building tiny kingdoms of their own on the backs of slave labor, class exploitation, legal manipulation, and genocide. They inevitably became microcosms of the stratified social hell they'd fled. And before long, the poor and desperate, like rats on a sinking ship, flooded out of the new world kingdoms just the same. But it wasn't they who were the rats. It was this lot of pseudo-aristocratic scum who turned their backs on their own brethren for a chance to play feudal lord. They were the real rats. And good riddance, said the serfs, westward bound to state claims of their own. They were gonna do things right. But each new settlement stratified into fiefdom like clockwork as the once dissident serfs ordained themselves the new lords of the manor. With each passing decade, the same story played out again and again, just a little further west. 
and it built a uniquely American system that still persists to this day. One that could best be described succinctly as, I got mine, so fuck you. These peasants come self-made nobles would be building McMansions if they were alive today. And we certainly know who they'd vote for. Jackson, 1828. And you thought 200 years was a long time. I'm Brad Dewar. And I'm Ryan Sheffield. And this is Texarkana. land surveyors, the 19th century predecessors to those guys in the orange safety vests with the tripod things you see on the side of the road. But trust me, it's not nearly as boring as it sounds. Land surveying in Texas dates back as far as 1722. Back then the units of measurement were less than precise. One league to the wind, for example, or my personal favorite, three cigarettes on a donkey. But all that changed when Stephen F. Austin came to Texas. He was a total wonk for survey policy. He mapped out a detailed plan for the Mexican government, and they went with it, adopting the Mexican vera as the standard unit of measurement, about three feet, give or take an inch. Surveying in the 1830s was a dangerous, often deadly job. They had bad roads or no roads, rough weather, disease, and hostile natives to contend with. And once expenses and time were accounted for, it didn't pay shit. Most surveyors at the time were seasoned frontiersmen and veterans of war. Needless to say, they were tough dudes, and they often served as the first line of defense for colonists. Tales of surveyors' adventures are the stuff of legend, like the guy who got scalped during an Indian raid, played dead till they were gone, then got right back to work. Or the dying man who carved his own epitaph into a tree as he bled out beneath its shade. For surveyors, death was just part of the job. And like any job that combines risk with low pay, little accountability, and a license to kill, it had a tendency to attract a certain type of person. A lot of these guys were straight up cutthroats who'd abandon one another as soon as things got messy, absconding with the equipment and cash as their compatriots lay dying. But even those with a conscience often found themselves in do or die situations, and sometimes the right thing just wasn't worth dying for. In the aftermath of the Texas Revolution, things got a whole lot worse. The new republic was broke, and the only worthwhile compensation they had to offer veteran soldiers for their service was land. So in January 1838, they established the General Land Office to manage and regulate all that, or more accurately, to just let it happen. Then President of Texas, Sam Houston, quote, used every endeavor within his power to prevent expeditions onto Indian hunting grounds. But Houston was a rare friend of the indigenous peoples, and when he urged the Congress to designate official boundary lines between white settlements and native land to prevent the obvious and inevitable conflicts, they refused to listen. Their priorities were no different than those of most white people in the Americas at the time. Growth and expansion, unfettered and unending, at all costs and by any means necessary. The surf kings of America, then and now, can never seem to have enough vassals. Sam Houston turned out to be just as prophetic as his contemporaries were myopic. While discussing the encroachment of settlements with a Comanche chief, he said, quote, 
If I could build a wall from the Red River to the Rio Grande so high that no Indian could scale it, the white people would go crazy trying to devise a means to get beyond it. William F. Henderson, deputy surveyor of the Robertson Land District in Robertson County, Texas, was very much one of those white people. These annoyances from the Indians continued for a long time, he wrote. Although our plans were frustrated after the result of these expeditions, we did not give up, but in the fall made another attempt which proved most disastrous of all. Henderson was based out of Old Franklin, a town about 60 miles southeast of Waco, and a mecca for surveyors and rangers from all over the Republic. If you were looking for skilled survey men, equipment, or guns for hire, Old Franklin was the place to find them. There was no shortage of Texas Army vets and other grant holders eager to stake their claims, and in early October 1838, Henderson assembled a party of 25 men for a venture north to the Trinity River Basin, and if all went well, to find themselves a new home. Day one. The party set out at dawn for the nine-hour hike to Fort Parker, or what was left of it. Two years earlier, a brutal Comanche raid had run off, snuffed out, or spirited away every living soul in the outpost, and it had been abandoned ever since. It was half past dusk by the time the surveyors caught sight of the spiked palisade walls edging over the horizon, backlit in the sunset like crooked spears of shadow piercing up through the earth. It was an ominous and haunting sight, but tonight, it was camp. Henderson was well acquainted with the dangers of Indian raids. He'd barely survived one himself just a few months before, but this time he felt prepared. He had a sizable posse in tow, and these weren't no tenderfoots. Two of them were Texas Rangers, and like most of their brothers in arms, they were experienced Indian killers, mostly for profit, but always for pleasure. A majority of the others were veterans of the revolution, or at least claimed to be, but even those who never fought could still taste the horrors of war like fresh blood in the back of their teeth. There were countless dangers lurking out on the frontier in the dead of night, but Henderson took at least some comfort in knowing that they were one of them. The night was quiet and cold, and sleep didn't come easy. Day two. By mid-afternoon, they reached the banks of the Richland Creek near modern-day Corsicana. It was a winding, shallow trench of dirt and rock, bled dry by months of summer sun. As surveyor Walter Lane described it, quote, the country was so dry that the earth cracked open. Thirst was definitely gonna be a problem, but at least the chainmen wouldn't have to tread water while they worked. The party crossed blind through a dense thicket and found themselves stumbling through the middle of a campsite full of kickapoos, somewhere between a few dozen and a few hundred, depending on who you asked. It was a common trope at the time for Texans to exaggerate the numbers of so-called Indians when they told tale of encounters, especially if things got violent. Whether the Texans won or lost a scuffle, it just made for a better story if the numbers were a little fudged. Luckily for the surveyors, these Kickapoos weren't looking for a fight. They greeted the newcomers warmly, and a fair amount of them spoke English. They said they'd made the journey down from a reservation in Arkansas to stock up on dried buffalo meat for the winter, and the Texans were more than welcome to set up camp wherever they liked. The Kickapoo tribe originated up north, near Lake Michigan, but they were driven further and further south by a century's worth of white settlers pouring into the upper Midwest, and of course, the genocidal zealots and policies that so often tagged along at the rear of any pioneer wagon train. The Kickapoos, like a lot of the white Texans at the time, were immigrants, refugees from civilization taking their chances in a treacherous new world. The Texas frontier had more than its fair share of war, hate, and murder, and the foundational dirt beneath every settlement, under every flag, 
was steeped in six centuries of blood. But for many natives, Americans, Europeans, and Mexicans alike, that was part of the appeal. It was a kind of dark equalizer, because in the vast wildlands of Texas, no one was safe. For all the animosity and violence between cultures and factions, and there was a lot, there was still a kind of grim understanding that even enemies can sometimes be fellow travelers when all roads lead to hell. And that day, in October 1838, the Kickapoos and the Texans camped side by side in peace on the parched and lifeless dirt. Day three. A busted magnet in one of the compass needles saw the day's work grind to a halt before it even began. It wasn't the worst thing that could happen. There was still plenty they could get done, but there couldn't be an accurate survey without it. And that meant someone had to make a run to the store, all the way back in Old Franklin. Two of the men, Love and Jackson, volunteered and saddled up for the ride. As the men gathered round to send them off, Love felt a chill slink up his spine. He turned to the men and said he reckoned they ought to just sit tight for a few days hold off on doing any survey work till he got back. He couldn't give a proper reason why, or couldn't find the words for it. Maybe there weren't any. It's just, that chill shook him something wicked is all. Henderson respected love enough to keep his thoughts to himself, but he'd be damned if they were gonna waste four whole days lollygagging around the campfire on account of some bad feeling. Besides, the Kickapoos seemed friendly enough and the weather was decent. Everything was gonna be just fine. Godspeed and hurry back now, y'all. Love and Jackson rode out, and just as soon as they disappeared into the thickets, the men once again broke out the chains. Day four. They were having breakfast around the campfire when the Kickapoo chief approached them with a dour look on his face and a dire warning. He'd gotten word that a nearby band of Ionis weren't too happy that a group of white surveyors were drawing chains across their hunting ground. He urged the men to just pack up and get out before someone got killed. We thanked them for the information. Lane wrote, but we said we weren't afraid of the Ionis, and if they attacked us, we'd clean them out. The chief's mood darkened. If they stayed, he said, they'd be dead by nightfall. His people had a treaty with the Ionis, and it was tenuous at best. If, or more likely when, the attack came, their hands would be tied. The look on the chief's face was one of genuine concern, not just for their lives, but for the safety of his own people. The Ionis were quick to cast blame, he told them and the last thing the Kickapoos needed was a heap of dead white men laid at their feet. But the surveyors again told the chief he had nothing to worry about. Last time they checked, the Ionis didn't even use guns. If the bastards were hankering for a fight, by God, they'd whip them for sure. The chief gave the men a solemn nod and left them to their breakfast. As they set to work, it was pretty clear that the Richland Creek vibe had palpably changed. It's not that the Kickapoos stopped being friendly, if anything, they were getting a little too friendly. They seemed to be making a purposeful effort to distract them from their work and just generally get in the way. They glommed onto the surveyors in pairs, shadowing them along the creek while they worked, and according to Henderson, kept asking, quote, annoying questions, like, is that a mile? Or pointing to the compass and asking, is that God's eye? As East Texas historian Jimmy L. Bryan Jr. noted, quote, after a century of defying European-American incursions, the Kickapoo finally gave way, but not to military force. They lost no great battle. The end came when the surveyors arrived and cut up the Indians' land. The Kickapoo knew well the bane of God's eye, and they were not eager to yield to it again. As the party neared the edge of a dried-out ravine, the men looked up from their equipment and realized they were suddenly alone. The Kickapoos must have gotten bored and wandered off into the woods or something. 
I'll accept one anyway. He walked up to Lane and politely asked him if he could bum a pinch of tobacco. Lane obliged and the Indian thanked him, shook his hand, and disappeared down into the ravine. Finally, Henderson thought, we might actually get some damn work. Explosions from the ravine. A horse cries out, rears up, collapses. Shadows move behind the smoke. How many? Dozens. Fifty maybe. Doesn't matter. Pack the shot. Fire. Someone's screaming in pain. Captain Neal is screaming. Charge. You barely hear it. You're screaming too. You run into the smoke without thinking. You just run. Your rifle takes 30 seconds to reload standing still. Doesn't matter. Theirs does too. The shadows move with you, shrinking. You've got them on the run. Pack the shot, goddammit, and just fire. The Kickapoo's route. Fall back some 40 yards to the tree line. It's too easy. It's a trap. Rifle blast split the dark between the trees. Shots from all sides as the shadows and the smoke fan out across the field. A hundred of them, more. Circling, moving in, getting closer. Captain Neal is screaming orders to get lost in the maelstrom of rifle cracks and screams. Doesn't matter, you've got the message loud and clear. Pour it, pack it, fire, and fucking run. The Texans regrouped back at the ravine and threw themselves flat against the banks. It was only about five feet deep at its nadir. Some scattered bushes and a lone cottonwood tree, the only cover. There's nowhere to hide. Don't think. Keep it steady. Make it count. Fire. A few of the men were already injured. Some bad. Two of the horses were dead, and the rest made for easy targets. The Kickapoo had the quarry surrounded, and as best the men could tell, had them outnumbered 10 to 1. The surveyor's best and only hope at that point was to hold out and hold them off, till the Indians lost interest, or decided it wasn't worth the casualties, and just moved on. It wasn't unrealistic, so long as they didn't die of thirst or bleed to death in the meantime. The Indians had no hostility towards us, Lane wrote. What they knew as we were surveying the land, the white people would soon settle there and break up their hunting grounds. And that was the thing. The Kickapoos didn't want to kill anyone. As far as they were concerned, they were just defending themselves, their livelihood, and their way of life. And in the process, sending a message to any other white men who might come out their way. Peace would always be met with peace, but chains? Chains could only be met with hot lead. The Kickapoos began climbing trees and firing down into the ravine. A couple of the men were hit, but they weren't the primary target. It was the horses they wanted. Without a means of escape, the surveyors would be easy pickings. A flurry of bullets rained down from the trees, and when the smoke cleared, all but two of the horses were bleeding out in the rocky ditch. The men couldn't spare the ammo to do the poor creatures right. All they could do was hunker down for cover behind their hulking bodies while the animals gasped and screamed in agony, some for hours, absorbing shot after shot and begging to die. There was nowhere to go and no way to get there, at least not till nightfall, and that was still some eight hours away. The firefight raged on deep into the afternoon. Captain Neal caught a bullet in the hip, and Euclid Cox was nominated without objection to take over as acting commander. He charged up the embankment and took cover behind the lonely cottonwood tree at the edge of the ravine. Cox managed to hold the position for several hours, picking off attackers with a pistol in each hand. But as dusk came down, his weary feet betrayed him. He stumbled just an inch, just enough, and caught a hot one clean through the spine. As he collapsed to the ground, the Kickapoo, quote, began to whoop like so many devils and seized on the moment to stage a charge. The surveyors managed to hold them off and push them back to where they had started, but they were right there too. Cox cried out for help, so Lane dropped his gun and made a mad dash up the embankment as bullets cut the air and split the rocks at his feet. He grabbed Cox by the shoulders and dragged him back down into the ravine. The men didn't bother to nominate a new commander. The skirmish had become a siege, and the Texans were running dangerously low on ammo, water, and blood. 
their rifle shots came fewer and farther between. Any hope that the Indians would tire out and move on had long since dried up and died in that barren ravine with the horses. And the sun, in all its cruelty, lingered, holding back the night just long enough to watch them die. The Texans somehow and barely managed to outlive the sun, but the moon, full, near, and bright as day, rose up in its place. The men agreed to wait till midnight, hoping it might bring enough cloud cover to allow for an escape beneath the shadows, but the clouds never came. A quarter mile of open prairie stood between the Texans and their sanctuary in the dark. The surveyors looked at each other in the ghost blue moonlight and reached consensus without a word. Death was coming for them, some sooner than others, and their chances only got worse with every second that went by. They tried to help Cox to his feet, but it was a lost cause, and he knew it just as well as they did, and he refused to be their burden. His assistant, Burton, offered to stay with him in the creek, but Cox shook his head. Dead man ain't got much use for good company. Cox handed Burton one of his two pistols and told him, you make it out of here, you take this gun to Washington County, and you give it to my wife. Burton nodded, took the gun, and ran. Cox groaned as he shifted onto his belly, raised his pistol, and readied himself for his final stand. The men hoisted the wounded onto the two surviving horses, and on the count of run, they made a break for it. The four wounded men were cut down from the horses in a matter of seconds, and the newly wounded were hoisted up to take their place. They rushed around us in a half circle, pouring hot shot into us, Lane wrote. We retreated in a walk, wheeling and firing as we went, keeping them at bay. One of the horses took a shot to the gut, tumbling to the ground and sending its two wounded riders sprawling across the prairie. One of them, delirious with shock, leapt to his feet and shouted, Lord, have mercy on me! as a dozen rifle balls tore his body apart. Lane hoisted Captain Neal up onto the recently vacated saddle of their last surviving horse. They made it just shy of 10 steps before a volley of rifle balls killed Neal and the horse and caught Lane in the calf, quote, Splinter in the bone and severing the leaders that connected with my toes. The shock and adrenaline numbed the pain just long enough for him to make a mad dash toward the mouth of the ravine and collapse beneath the shadows on the embankment. Two men and a teenage boy managed to escape into the forest by way of the Brazos Falls. They had no idea if anyone else survived. They just ran. As Lane caught his breath, he was relieved to find that he wasn't alone. Henderson, too, was pressed up against the rocks beneath the brush, shaken but alive. There were others, too, still out there in the battlefield, moaning, crying out, praying. One by one, the Kickapoos found them. Plumes of red mist shot up toward the stars and shimmered like dew in the moonlight, drifting off on the breeze. If the tribe was going to get out of this with clean hands, there could be no witnesses and no survivors. They camped with the surveyors for three days. They knew their numbers, their faces, their names, and if they had to, they'd hunt down every last one of them. The Texans pressed themselves flat against the rocks and cocked their guns. Lane wrote that they were, quote, ready to give them one parting salute if they discovered us. And they passed us by so closely, I could have put my hands on any of their heads. The horn-like wail of a conch shell echoed through the trees, a signal to regroup and the warriors passed back the way they came, missing the men for the shadows by mere inches and a fistful of dumb luck. Once the Kickapoos were safely out of sight, Lane and Henderson hurried down the embankment where they found Burton and Violet huddled near a pool of muddy runoff. The men slurped down as much of the muck as they could stand, but there was no time to rest. 
They only had a few hours before sunrise, and without the cover of darkness, they'd be sitting ducks. Violet's leg was broken during the retreat. The others did their best to bandage and stabilize the shattered thigh bone, but he couldn't stand, much less walk. They exchanged knowing glances, and Violet shook his head. He grabbed Lane's wrist and begged him, please don't leave me, please. Lane put a hand on Violet's shoulder. If they could make it back to Old Franklin, they could send a proper rescue party for him and all the others, if there were any others. But if they stayed, they were all dead. They'd come back for him, swear to God Almighty on my mother's grave, they'd come back. And they left him there. Day five. Henderson, Lane, and Burton followed the Richland Creek south till the morning sun threatened to sell them out. They spotted a brush-covered island in the middle of the creek. They collapsed there beneath the tall grass and did the only thing they could do, wait for the moon to rise and curse its light when it finally came. For hours, they laid there silent and motionless, listening as the Indians scoured the area on horseback, more than once passing within yards of their hiding place. The Texans had no food and no water, just four guns and a bowie knife between them, and those wouldn't be worth a damn to the dead. When night finally came, the trio made ready to move out. Lane, weak from the blood loss and crippled by pain, was overcome by a head rush and fainted right there on the spot. He came to a few minutes later to find Henderson and Burton at each other's throats. He ain't gonna make it, and you know it. We gotta move on without him. He's just gonna slow us down and get us killed. We're friends, Henderson shot back. And I'll stick with him to the last. Before Burton could reply, Lane staggered to his feet and, as he put it, Cursed both loud and kept, and I told Burton he was a white-livered plebeian, and in spite of his 150 pounds, I would beat him to the settlements. Burton shut his mouth, and the trio got moving, following some buffalo trails they hoped might lead them to water. Instead, they met the dawn lost and thirsty, with only a few miles behind them. They didn't bother looking for a place to hide from the light. Whether the Indians caught up to them or not, they'd be dead of thirst by nightfall. So they pressed on. Day six. It was late afternoon, and the men were delirious and half dead by the time Tehuacana Hill crested the horizon. By Henderson's reckoning, the hill's gushing springs were only six miles from where they stood, the final stretch to salvation. But Burton shook his head. Nope. He plopped down right there on the ground and crossed his arms like a fussy toddler. Y'all go on, torture yourselves all y'all want. Right here seems like as good a place as any for a man to die. You ain't got no grit! Lane screamed, and with a little chiding from Henderson, a curse or two, and probably a fair amount of spit, Burton gave in to peer pressure and got back on his feet. The thought of all that pure, delicious spring water drove their weary legs forward and all the way up the hilltop. There were only a few yards between them and the life-saving oasis when a band of ten mounted kickapoos rode up on them from the woods. The men fell to their knees, unsure whether to laugh, cry, or scream, and too weak to do any one of them anyways. But the Kickapoos weren't brandishing weapons, and when the chief raised his hand to them in a greeting, it dawned on Lane that they'd somehow managed to stay a few steps ahead of the news. The horsemen must not have heard about what went down at Richland Creek, yet. Thinking fast, Lane waved down the chief and breathlessly detailed their narrow escape from a ruthless band of Iones who'd attacked them without the least bit of motive or provocation. The chief's ears perked up at the mention of the rival tribe, but he still wasn't 100% sold on the story and he had a few questions. But Lane cut him off, crying out for water, water. The chief gave him a look that could best be described as white boys, then pointed at the flowing spring right there in front of him. There, 
is water, he said. The Texans scrambled toward the spring like they were on fire and threw their broken bodies into the heavenly cold water. Once they'd drank their fill and washed their wounds, Lane asked the chief if he'd be willing to take him on horseback to a settlement, any settlement. The chief stared deep into Lane's sunken eyes and said solemnly, Maybe so you die tonight. Not unless you kill me, Lane replied. <laughs> no kill, the chief said, smiling. Want eat? The Kickapoos carried the haggard men to their camp nearby, where they treated their wounds, fed them warm turtle soup, and gave them a place to sleep. The irony of the situation wasn't lost on the Texans. They knew the Kickapoo were good people, as good as anyone could be, anyway, out there on the frontier. And they knew just as well that the only thing separating a fellow traveler from an enemy was the chain they'd left behind, and it was only a matter of time before it caught up to them. As Henderson, Burton, and Lane were bedding down in warm blankets for the night, Violet was still clinging to life in the muddy ditch where they'd left him. He'd survived for three days on green haws and plums and the hope of eventual rescue. To our modern ears, it felt like little more than an empty promise made to a dying man, but Violet never doubted his comrades. He knew they'd come back for him, but still, he couldn't wait forever. The closer he got to old Franklin, the sooner they'd find him, so he resolved to meet him halfway. He gathered up whatever materials he could find to Jimmy rig a splint, then he bit down hard on a twig and set his own broken femur. Violet rolled onto his belly in the creek bed, clawed his fingers into the dirt, and dragged. Day seven. Henderson, Burton, and Lane got up before the sun. They thanked the Kickapoos for saving their lives and then hit the road before they had a chance to regret it. Only a few hours into their journey, a group of six mounted Indians caught sight of the trio from across the prairie and rode up on them. The horses drew to a halt a few yards away and the lead rider held a rifle high in the air. Our time has come, Lane said. Howdy, the rider shouted. We want to trade guns. The Texans tried not to make the relief too obvious. They weren't off the hook just yet. The rider wanted Henderson's rifle in exchange for the one he was holding up, which, upon closer inspection, was a beat-up piece of junk they'd clearly found in a field somewhere. It definitely wasn't a good trade, but by the tone of things, it wasn't an optional one. Henderson handed over the gun without hesitation. It wasn't worth a fight, they just wanted to go home. They told the riders they were welcome to keep their junk rifle, but just to make the trade fair, they wanted a guide to Fort Parker, and Lane, given the sorry state of his leg, needed a horse for the trip. To the Texans' surprise, one of the riders agreed. The derelict fort was no less creepy in the daytime. Sans the shadows, you could see every splinter, and the rust stains ran like blood. As they approached the ruin, Burton leaned toward his comrades and whispered, Hey, why don't we just kill the Indian? Take his horse. He was unarmed. Back turned. Their guide saw them jump, and he tried to put them at ease. It was just some Indians camped about a mile away, he said. In fact, he was just about to ride over there and join them. Nothing to fear, he assured them. Kickapoo are friendly Indians. The Texans exchanged wide-eyed glances. If they'd made a move on the Indian, the whole warband would have heard the shot and been on them in minutes. Burton, again, shut his damn mouth. The guide helped Lane dismount and bade them farewell as he rode off toward the camp, likely with a tale to tell about the wounded, neurotic white man he'd just dropped off at the fort. The Texans reckoned they had less than an hour before the warband was hot on their trail. They bypassed the abandoned outpost and waded down into the Navasota River, slogging through the cold water to hide their tracks, and didn't stop moving till well after nightfall. Day 9 
They'd been walking for two straight days when a voice shouted, Halt! It was two white men on horseback, about 40 yards away, guns leveled. It occurred to Lane right then what a grisly sight the three of them must be. Stripped down to rags and skivvies, emaciated, eyes sunken in and dark, black with dirt and drenched in gore. The horsemen probably weren't sure if they were staring down some renegade Indians or a pack of shambling corpses risen up from the grave. Lane threw up his hands and shouted, We're friends! White men! The men lowered their guns, and to everyone's surprise, it was Love and Jackson, the two men who'd gone to town to get a new magnet before things went south. They quickly dismounted and helped the exhausted, grateful men onto their horses. We have no record of what was said during their 15-mile trek back to Old Franklin, so I guess Mr. Love decided to keep his I told you so's to himself. As soon as they got to town, Love assembled a 50-man rescue party and set out in search of survivors. They made it to the springs by late afternoon, where they stopped to drink and rest. Suddenly they heard a rustling in the woods nearby, something growling or groaning, indistinct. A dark shape on all fours barreling toward them through the trees. They were caught off guard and scrambled for their guns as the thing crawled out into the daylight and collapsed in a heap. As they approached it, guns raised. It reached out with its skeletal hand, black with blood, and it spoke. Boys, I'm mighty glad you've come. It was violent. Despite the broken leg, despite the thirst, the starvation, and all imaginable odds, he not only managed to survive, but it dragged himself a full 25 miles to the springs. The men treated his wounds, fed him, and made him, quote, as comfortable as they could. But for now, they had to keep moving. Violet's miraculous escape meant there might still be hope for other survivors. But as they neared the banks of the Richland Creek, any hope they might have had was lost in the stench of carnage. A final cloud of vultures filled the sky. Below them, the prairie was a sea of blood, stagnant pools soaking into the thirsty creek bed, seeping through the winding fractures like veins. Bodies littered the field in all directions, obscured beneath the writhing swarms of feathers and gore. Gunshots sent the birds scattering and brought the nightmare into full view. Wolves had gotten to the bodies. The skin was flayed where it wasn't gone altogether. Bones exposed, snapped, and gnawed. Innards ripped apart and strewn across the grass. The men canvassed the area, but there weren't any survivors to be found. The search party had become a burial party. They gathered the remains beneath the only trees in an otherwise empty field. Two of them, their trunks grown together at the base, their fates forever intertwined in their mutual isolation. The dead were laid to rest in a mass grave marked only by a single nail driven into the common trunk of the two lonesome trees. A wordless epitaph for 18 nameless men. In all, seven men survived what would come to be known as the surveyor's fight. Lane spent two months under the care of nurses in Old Franklin until his leg healed. Violet, too, miraculously recovered. Burton surprisingly managed to redeem himself somewhat by staying true to his promise and delivering Cox's pistol to his wife and children. The reunification and recovery of the survivors was something they could be grateful for, but still, many of those who didn't make it left behind widows and orphans. And though no source we found bothered to mention the fate of the Kickapoos, we have to imagine their story was very much the same. For more than a century, the history of their tribe reads like a tragedy and though they never wanted this battle to happen and took no pleasure in the killing, it was still a rare victory. After all, these weren't just some peasants fresh off the boat from Europe. These were Texans with a long pedigree of frontier warfare. Whatever their numbers or tactics might have been, 
the wind must have been somewhat vindicating. By that point, any tribe that had migrated from the east, and most of the Europeans too, knew exactly who and what they were up against. Their grandfathers had scalped each other. In a weird way, these people were cousins, brought together by the blood that had been spilled on every frontier since Jamestown. In the wake of the surveyor's fight, the blood-soaked banks of the Richland earned the nickname Battle Creek, but it wasn't all that original. There are at least three other Battle Creeks in Texas alone, each one named after a skirmish between settlers and natives, years and decades apart. It was the same story playing out over and over across time and across the continent. Two cultures dependent on the other's destruction for their own survival, their fates forever entwined like two trees on a grave. The unwashed masses of Europe had fled across the ocean to escape the chains of debt and the boundaries of class, but their journey westward didn't stop at the Eastern American shore, and the only way to build their new world was to bind and divide it with chains of their own. For the native peoples, it was an apocalypse. Their populations decimated by microbes, their gods dethroned, and their ancestral lands seized and raped by the fell incantations of legalese. The white man's witchcraft was as deep and ancient as their own, but its accoutrements were strange ones. The printed word, the maps, the laws, and of course, the lines. Lines conjured from nothing but a surveyor's lens and drawn across the earth in chains. The natives weren't ignorant. They saw the land patent officers, the draftsmen, the courts, the contracts, for exactly what they were, harbingers of the end. History had told them, their grandfathers had told them, and their grandfathers before them, they stood no chance against the vast resources and reach of the invisible death machine the white man called government. But if they couldn't cut it down at the roots, they could still cull the seedlings. Growth and expansion were the lifeblood of the beast. So the natives took dead aim for its heart, the surveyor's compass, God's eye, the thing that steals the land. And when they found themselves with a clean shot, they took it. It was true, focused resistance. And this time, it worked. Tex Arcana is written and produced by us, Brad Dewar and Ryan Sheffield. Our theme music in this episode's outro song are by Whiskey Folk Ramblers, whose bass player, Jack, is an awesome artist and a really good friend of ours. Check out his work on his Etsy store, Jack Daw Folk Art. Additional music by Less Than One and available at freemusicarchive.org. We want to make the best show we possibly can, so we've listened to your feedback and we're making a few changes. We're going to do away with the episode numbers and the distinction between shortcuts and long-form episodes, so we can stick to a more standardized format. That way, you'll know exactly what to expect when you tune in. We're still fairly new to this whole podcast thing, and we're kind of figuring it out as we go along. So thanks to all our listeners who've reached out to us. And please, keep the feedback coming. We really appreciate it. See you next month. And thanks for listening, y'all.